0: I, we're doing something I've never done before, which is a review. Isn't that strange? I've never done a review class. Um, Dean brought it up to me, and I thought, you know, that kind of makes sense. We do review classes with the kids. Why wouldn't we do review classes with the big kids, right? So uh, so we're, that's what we're going to do. If you've got your notes, you'll need your notes today. Uh, there will be some parts I kind of want you to not look at your notes. I want you to see if you can conjure the answer from within, but uh, it's okay. If you got your notes, you can have those open. We'll start back on uh, page 3 is where we'll begin. And we're just going to do an overview. And then next week we will enter into our conversation about Christology, the nature of Christ. Okay? Very good. Well, how about um, I pray and then we'll jump into a little review class. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time that we have together to... Talk about you and to consider what it is that your word says about who you are, who we are, who you've called us to be through the gospel. Help us to uh, understand more and more about the world around us, that we would honor you rightly with our hearts and our minds. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Yes, ma'am. You say you do have a review with the kids, you have to also do it with us. I know, isn't that interesting? I, I just never even thought of doing that, but um, how true is it that we forget things so easily, don't we? And so the point of the, the review time is I'm going to go back and obviously not teach through everything, but hit the uh, points that I feel like are the, the most fundamental, critical points in what we've studied in theology so far, okay? So let's start with this. The fundamental distinction between who God is and who we are. Um, there are two titles. These are words that begin with C. What is the fundamental distinction between God and man? Good. God is creator. And man is... Yeah, a creature you could say. Okay. Now, how wide... Is this gap? Okay. Could we go as far to say that it is infinite? Okay. Yeah, I think so. There's an infinite gap, which means it cannot be traversed. Right? It cannot be crossed over. Um, it is an uh, insurmountable or unsurmountable. I'm not remembering. Either way, it is, we'll call it insurmountable. An insurmountable gap between the creator and the creature. Now this leads to uh, our conversation that we had weeks ago about God's attributes. Because there's also a distinction in God's attributes. There are two main categories of God's attributes. And what are those categories? You remember? Good. Which side of the chasm do the incommunicable attributes fall on it? Okay, now incommunicable and communicable are interesting words. We actually do use them in our modern vernacular, especially communicable. You've heard it over the last three years of, as we've been dealing with a communicable disease, a communicable virus around the, around the world. And so let's uh, define these. What is an incommunicable attribute of God? How, how would you define what that means? Something like him, only him. Okay, so only God possesses these attributes. Okay, now what about communicable, on the other hand? some that you shares with us. Okay. Attributes. Well, I don't need to put attributes. That's implied. For the sake of symmetry here. Uh, only God possesses. Uh, man can reflect or imitate these attributes. All right, so if you can... Essentially, understand this big idea. It's going to get you really far in the world of uh, doctrine and theology because this touches on a lot of stuff. So, let's talk about the incommunicable attributes a bit. Look at your notes, pages three and four. We covered some incommunicable attributes. Let's uh, throw one or two of them out there. What do you got for incommunicable attributes? What do you got? Transcendence. Okay. Transcendence. Meaning that God is independent of and sovereign over what? Oh, space and time. Good. Yeah. Time, space, matter. Okay. So you can see how that is uniquely one of His attributes. Can you name any other being in existence that transcends time, space, and matter? No, <laughs> no right? And will you ever... Transcend time, space, and matter? No, you won't. Even in your glorified state as a Christian, when you're living in the new earth, what a day that will be, you will still be subject to time and space and matter. You won't become omnipresent. You won't become someone who exists outside of the markings of time. Uh, one of the my favorite things to point out in regard to that is uh, in Revelation 21 or 22, the picture we get of the new Earth, there's the tree of life again, the tree of life re-emerges and it bears its fruit every month. There are still months in the new Earth, isn't that something? And uh, matter, or uh, yeah, space and matter, you're not going to be omnipresent. You're not going to be able to uh, fill heaven and earth as God fills heaven and earth. So transcendence applies to him and him alone. We also have, if you've got page three in front of you, an aspect of transcendence is azeity or azeity. Who can define that for us from your notes? What do you have? What does that mean? God is self-existent. Very good. Is there any other being that is self-existent? No. Because all beings besides God are creatures, meaning they were created, meaning their existence depends on someone outside of themselves. But God, his dependence exists on no one. Okay? Okay. Other, let's do one or two more uh, incommunicable attributes here. Eternality. God exists simultaneously in one indivisible present, not conditioned by time. Now, to be eternal, he also has to be immaterial. And you've got that definition on your notes at the bottom of page three. What is God's immateriality? What does that mean? Got that where he's uh, transcendent and eternal, he must also be immaterial to be that. Mm-hmm. So connect those dots for me. What is well, What does immaterial mean? Because sometimes we'll say, well, that's immaterial in reference to something in life. Yeah, he is immaterial. You can't touch him. Okay, good. He's, they speak in human terms, their eyes, ears, arms, and stuff, but he has nothing. He's, okay. he's a spirit. Good, yeah. Uh, Jesus told the woman at the well, God is spirit, mm-hmm. and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Mm-hmm. Now when we say, that's immaterial, often we mean, what, like that's insignificant. Right. Okay, so this, a different usage of the word. We're talking about physicality here. God is immaterial, meaning he's not made of atoms. He, there are no protons, neutrons, and electrons that make up God's constitution in any sense he is spirit <clears throat> he's absolutely spirit and he must be spirit in order to be eternal because well, you get these protons neutrons and electrons and they're subject to the second law of thermodynamics aren't they which says that everything is going what direction <laughs> Beam, down right things are winding down okay there was a beginning for all of creation and it's winding down with God there is no winding down He is eternally the same, the same yesterday, today, and forever in His character and in His nature and His being, okay? Uh, Of course, there's omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, the the three omnis, uh, and God is immutable that He doesn't change. God never changes in His being, His perfections, His purposes, or His promises, Any thoughts or questions on the incommunicable attributes? Anything to add to to that review? Okay, what about communicable? Starting on page 5. God's communicable attributes, meaning those that man can reflect or imitate to a degree. And that should be added because that's really a, a really important aspect, isn't it? How does God exercise His attributes. He always exercises his attributes in perfections, doesn't he? In fact, sometimes people call God's attributes his perfections. So we just have to clarify, just because man can reflect and imitate these attributes, they can never, no human being could ever reflect these attributes at a one-to-one ratio that God does. Uh, Our love For someone else, as strong as it may be, as committed as we may be, as covenantally involved as we may be, our love will never match God's love at a one to one ratio, right? You recognize this. And so we are reflecting God's attributes to a degree. We can't reflect omnipotence. We can't reflect, um, you know, uh, omniscience. We can have power, we can have knowledge, but we can't have all of those things. But well, we can reflect these attributes. And what are what's one or two that we can highlight here? I just mentioned love, so let's skip over love. What what other ones do we have here? Justice. Hey, justice. Now God's justice, again, is perfect. Uh, you have on your sheet, this is the middle of page five. His justice is inescapable. His judgments are consistent and comprehensive. How consistent are our judgments? we tend to have bias, don't we? Yeah, we we tend to be pretty inconsistent. But we can reflect the justice of God. In fact, we demand that justice be done in our homes, in our churches, in our society. We demand that there be justice because we recognize there is a degree to which we can reflect the justice of God. Uh, We have lots of verses through this study, uh, pages five and six, that speak of this but Micah 6 8 is an important one what does God require of you O man what has God called you to do but to seek justice love mercy and walk humbly with your God so man's calling is to seek justice to do justice okay how about grace Uh, what did we learn about grace down there at the bottom of page five Okay. meaning, yeah, do you ever get to breathe one breath apart from God's grace? No. no, you do not. We are dependent on God's grace, that's another statement we have down there. We are utterly dependent on God's grace. Uh, while we're on that subject, what's the difference between common grace and special grace? Someone want to sum that up for me? My, my notes are blank on that, so what do you got? Common grace and special grace. Okay. Special care, God-saving action in the life of the sinner, and effectiveness, it always yep. comp- or accomplishes its task. Very good, yeah. So all creatures are benefactors of God's grace, right? Sunshine, rain, relationships that we have, uh, the fact that there's food, there's breath in our lungs. Every creature is a benefactor of God's grace in that sense. Uh, But His special grace has to do with salvation. And not everybody experiences God's special grace, obviously. There are many people who go through their entire life and just don't know the Lord. They don't have any relationship with the Lord whatsoever. And so special grace is that, that aspect of God accomplishing His saving purposes in the lives of those He chooses. And without God's grace, we would have no hope. Um, But we can reflect God's grace, not that we can save anybody. We wish we could sometimes. We wish we could implement His special grace and just boop, boop, boop. You're saved, you're saved, you're saved. We can't do that. But we can reflect His grace in our treatment of other people in the way that we uh, show gospel love and concern for people. If we seek to do that apart from grace, we're not doing a very good job. And so we reflect the grace of God as a communicable attribute in that sense. All right. Any thoughts or questions on these attributes, incommunicable and communicable, and the difference between the two? Okay, now before you look at your notes, let's see if you can do this without your notes. What are the three words you need to know as it pertains to the Trinity? If you're seeking to communicate the doctrine of the Trinity to somebody, there are three words that you need to bring up. Who's got it? Who can do it, or at least one of the words? Not the three words I gave you, Mandy. The three words. Oh well, that's true. That's true, and that is a good word, but it's not the one, not one of the ones I gave you, though it's implied. Come on, somebody else wants to say. I want to see if you can do it without your notes. Because this is really important. God is blank. God is blank. All three are blank. Go to page seven. Page seven. What are the first three blanks you have on page seven? You guys did so good when we were going through it. Uh-huh. I, I remember. I was thinking like <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and Mandy, you did say co-equal, and equality is one of the words, so I'll give you half a point, okay? You get half a point today. <laughs> all right. Well, what do we mean when we say there is singularity as an aspect of the Godhead? God is singular. What does that mean? We're all one. Okay. Meaning what? Okay, there is one God. There is one God. We are monotheists. We don't believe in multiple creators. There's only one creator. And see, all of this is tied together. Uh, there's only one creator. If there are multiple creators, you'd have to say, well, which creator was first? Right? Well, there's only one creator. See, there's singularity in the Godhead. God is one. Now, what about plurality? How does that factor in? Because that's contradictory, isn't it? Three parts. three parts. Don't say parts. Person. James was on it. Good job, James. We don't say parts because God is not made of parts, is he? Person. Persons. Three persons. persons. Yes, there are three persons. Okay. So, there is singularity in regard to his essence. Okay. Or his nature, you could say. Oops. Got to spell the word correctly. Uh, oh, I was spelling it correctly. Essence. And then persons is where we get this plurality concept. So uh, you could say being here too. If someone says, "How many beings are there of God?" What do you say? Three. What happens with number plural Persons. Beings. How many beings are there? One. There is only one God. God. Yes. Very good. And if now someone says, now what about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Aren't they three beings? You correct their language, gently, graciously, lovingly, and say, they are not three different beings, they are three distinct persons of the Godhead. And there's a big difference between being and person. That is on page 8. The bottom half of page 8. What is the distinction between essence and Or being and person? Nature. Okay, so the essence defines the nature, a set of characteristics defining the nature. I used the example in the lesson of a triangle. What is the essence of a triangle? Well, it has to have three corners, it has to have three sides, the degrees of the angles have to add up to. Do you know? (laughs) guys don't remember this from geometry class? (laughs) 180, right? The angles have to add up to 180, okay? Because you get your, your, uh, what is it, your right triangle, that's a right angle, that's 90 degrees, and the other two are smaller, it adds up to 180, okay. 180. So, we're defining what a triangle is. A triangle has an essence. I can't come up here and say... um, you know, look at this. It's a triangle. I can't do that. No. Because that doesn't match the definition. thats I don't even know what that is. That's like half of a hexagon or something. Okay? So you, you, can't, you can't just make up definitions. Everything has to have a definition. And when it comes to God, there is one essence. There aren't multiple beings out there who are creators. There aren't multiple beings out there that, uh, you know, are, are omnipotent, omniscient Beings that uh, exist totally separately, as you and I are totally separate. Okay, you have one God, yet He is eternally presented as three persons—Father, Son, and Spirit. So we talked about the di- distinction between uh, creature and creator when it comes to essence and persons. How many persons are you? One, one right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> yeah, we are locked in one-to-one here. We have one nature, you're one person. God is one nature, three persons. Okay. Co-equal, co-eternal, simultaneous. Connie. This just gets very confusing for me, this Cloudy, especially when people refer to Jesus as God. Yep. And it's just oh, me and they are walking into this class without all of this prior knowledge. Yeah, and yeah. But so when someone refers to Jesus as God, they're mainly referring to the Godhead, correct? Yeah. Um, so the equality aspect is really important here because. We're saying there's, there are three persons, right? There's no no doubt that we have Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay? When you read Scripture, there's no way to walk away and say, well, only the Father is God. No, no. Because Scripture says that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. And what we're saying with this doctrine is that each one is 100% God. Each person is is 100% God. Now, our human logical mind because particularly our experience in life, we say, "Well, that must mean there are three gods." How could there not be three gods if the Father's 100% God, the Son is 100% God, the Spirit is 100% God, the Father's not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit's not the Father? How do we get to one God if this is the case? And that's because the overwhelming testimony of scripture Explicitly so is that there is only one God. And let's look at some scriptures on that. We'll go to Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Just verse 4, very short verse. And I will uh, pick up in the New Testament with James 2. So someone read Deuteronomy 6 4? Alright, so a very explicit statement. This is something that the Jews had to memorize and repeat often, by the way. This was a very famous passage in Israel. They were to recognize that Yahweh, their God, was one. All of the gods of the other nations, all the pagan gods, all the made-up deities that existed were not real. There is only one God. That was at the heart of of their doctrine, as at the heart of their theology. But it wasn't just for Israel, to the church as well, in James 2.19, we are told, you believe that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe and shudder. So James 2.19 gives us the same testimony, God is one. You also get this in First Timothy 2.5. There is only one God, is what 1 Timothy 2.5 says. Uh, You get it in the apostles' preaching through the book of Acts as they refer to the one true God. Uh, There are a variety of places we could go where you see that there is only one God. The Bible presents monotheism. So what do we do? Well, we submit to what Scripture says. And even though our minds look at this and say, Father, Son, Spirit, each 100% God, each distinct from each other... That has to equal three gods. We go to Scripture, and Scripture says, Nope, there's only one. So what are we going to do? We submit to what Scripture says. Because that is the presupposition of the Christian. That's the starting point for the Christian. Is to come to the Bible and say, The Word of God has authority over me. And so I'm going to follow what Scripture says to its conclusion. And what Scripture presents to us is one God, three persons... Each 100% God, there's only one God. Okay? (laughs) (laughs) Now, again, we look at ourselves and we say, how can that be? How could that be? I am but one person. But God is not a creature, is He? God is infinite creator. It always comes back to this. There is but one creator. And if Jesus, we'll say the Son, and the Spirit... Are separate beings from the Father, then which one came first? Who came first? You're not going to get that kind of language even in Scripture because Scripture tells us the Father created, the Son created, and the Spirit created. John 1 3, all things were made by Him and through Him, the Son. Colossians chapter 1, all things are by Him and for Him, the Son. Job chapter 33, the Spirit of the Lord God made me. At the beginning of creation, the spirit was hovering over the, the waters. All three are spoken of as creator. So it's not that the father existed, then he created the son, then they created the spirit. You just don't get that kind of presentation in scripture. Joe? You sometimes just have to accept things the way it is. Very good. Very good. And what would it do to our relationship with God if we had them all figured out? Wouldn't that make this insurmountable gap between creator and creature now surmountable? I think it's just a a major reason uh, why Scripture presents this the way it does is it keeps us in our place. We look at it and we say, that just can't make sense. But that's because God is so much more than we are. He is wholly other. And so we accept that. It's part of faith. It's a part of the Christian faith. Well, like you said, if, if not, then we would, we would begin to boast. Mm-hmm. There's no place for us. Yes. bulging or pride. Just, that's what if, if there's no room for mystery, what have we done? Now, God has told us things, so we can't say, well, this is all just up in the air. We don't know. God's told us these things. We're holding on to these. But how does it all work? How does that, how does that not contradictory? How does it all perfectly make sense? We can't get there because we're creatures. And so we hold on to what he has said. Evelyn? I was just, didn't you say at that time that it's important to know that it's not like God the Father goes, oh, now I've got to be God the Son. Oh, I am the It's, they're not like. That yeah, takes away the simultaneous aspect. Yeah, yeah that, that's a, a heresy called modalism that was first taught by a guy named Sibelius back in the third or fourth century. And yeah, it was basically God takes turns. He's Father, then he's Son, then he's Spirit. Or, you could say, he is sometimes Father, or at other times he's Son, or at other times he's Spirit. Well, there are multiple passages that we go to where we see all three persons simultaneously. The baptism of Jesus is most famous, right? Uh, But you can also think of Jesus praying in the garden. When he was praying to the Father, was the Father hearing him? Yes, because the Father's not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. So, yeah, good point. Other questions at this juncture? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, one thing that can help you remember uh, how this all works is the the illustration that was given on... uh, What page was that? Page 10? Yeah, page 10. You got the triangle and the circle. Okay. Now, does this... Solve all your problems. No, I mean, this this isn't going to do your laundry for you or anything like that, but this will at least help you to just get your mind around some stuff, okay? So you have an illustration that looks like this, and I'm not putting God in a box, okay? (laughs) That's just a way to signify that. All right, so you've got Father, Son, and Spirit. That's a P down here Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son and the Father are not each other. The Father and the Spirit are not each other. The Son and the Spirit are not each other. Okay, Son isn't the Father. Father isn't the Spirit. Spirit isn't the Son. Round and round we go. But what you have is this reality where each one is God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. But each one is not each other. There's this distinction in person, but a total unity and equality in essence. All three are God. Okay? Is Jesus present to the God before creation? Yes. John chapter 17 gets into that. Well, John chapter 1, verse 1 gets into that. But John 17, uh, Jesus says in John 17, 5, as he's praying to the Father, one of those moments, he says, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. Now, what's really fascinating about that, you can jot this down. I don't know if I gave this to you in your notes, but what's extremely fascinating about that, you've got Jesus praying this in John 17, 5. That's the verse I just quoted. But then, you have this very interesting verse in Isaiah 42.8. In Isaiah 42.8, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God, the Lord of all creation, declares, I will not share my glory with another. Blanket statement. I'm not sharing my glory with anybody else. And then Jesus comes along and He prays to the Father in the hearing of His disciples, who were Jewish, who knew the Hebrew Scriptures... And he prays, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. But he said he wouldn't share his glory with another. How could it be possible that they shared in the same glory? Because they're one in essence and beings. The distinction is just in persons. Okay? There is but one God. Jesus is God. The Son of God is God. The Spirit is God. And there's a sharing in the glory that God will not share with the creature. Jesus isn't a creature in any sense. Okay? Good. What else? I like answering questions on the fly. It's fine. What other things we got? Shane? Yeah, I was just wondering. Because you got three Godheads, so then they, uh, then they just share the power? So three, have yeah, three persons in the Godhead, and it's important to remember this. Each is 100%. Because uh, when we think in our creaturely existence... We are going to share a pizza, which I don't like doing because I love pizza. Uh, So it's not the pizza part I don't like, it's the sharing part I don't like. But we go and we share in a pizza, each of us is just getting a portion. If there are three of us, theoretically, we each get a third. Well, the Godhead is not made up of a third, a third, a third. The Father, Son, and Spirit are all fully, thoroughly, comprehensively, 100% God. And so, yes, they share in the divine essence, but they share in the fullest. So, uh, for example, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, All the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus in bodily form. Now, isn't that something? In Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. So that means that at that point, and I guess since Jesus took on a body, then the Father and the Spirit were emptied or void of all deity, right? Because if He took all the fullness. No. It's because at the same time, simultaneously, Father, Son, and Spirit are the fullness of deity. And there is but one deity. One God. Okay. Good. What else? I have a Uh, Good. Cheat sheet's good to have. (laughs) Yeah, you gave me some time ago. Uh And it says, exactly, equality, not just three equal parts, but all three persons of the one being of God are 100% co-eternal, equal in power and authority. Very good. And that's why we want to avoid that language of parts. Because parts mean... Uh, smaller than the whole but come together to make up the whole. And so we don't want to convey that idea with the Godhead because Father, Son, and Spirit aren't smaller than the whole. Each one is 100% God. So there are not three parts that come together to make God like a puzzle. And you get God when the puzzle's completed. That's not how that works. But each one is 100% God on his own, individually. Okay? So, I will... Put a put a line through this. Okay, just to keep the visual up there. That's just that's not what we want to do. We want to keep it right here. Okay. Hey, Joe. Give us the word Trinity. Come into? So Trinity is actually uh, the like two words, triunity, triunity, and you put them together, you get Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, like many words we use aren't in the Bible. Okay. Uh, in fact, the word Bible as we use it, isn't in the Bible. You have the word "biblos" in reference to books, but not like the way we use it. Um, and so Trinity is a word that has come up in Christian theology as Christians have worked this out. The church has worked this out as believers sitting down with the Word of God saying, what do we, what do we have? Eventually it was worked out not just the term, but the conclusion from Scripture uh, that God is triune. There is a there is a tri-aspect, no getting around that. It's not a a bi-aspect, there's not just father-son, it's not a quad. There are three persons. And within those three persons, there is thorough absolute unity. And so the word Trinity kind of conveys that. Yeah. Good. Okay. Any other questions on the nature of God at all before we talk about the nature of man to finish up, to review the nature of man? Any. It just sounds funny. Any other questions on the nature of God? Like, we could ever reach the end of our questions about the nature of God. Uh, Okay. Doing all right? Well, let's go to page uh, 11. That is where we began our study on the nature of man called anthropology. And so uh, there are five things I want to hit on here. Five aspects of the nature of man that I want to touch on as part of our review. Can someone please give me a summary of what the imago Dei, the image of God, is or means? When we say image of God, what are we making reference to regarding mankind? That man is Trinity? Well, if we're made in God's image and God is Trinity, like we were just saying, shouldn't we be Trinity? Okay, how do we get there? What's the answer? Very good. Yeah, uh, a major, major aspect of the image of God. When we go back to Genesis 1, uh, this is verses 26 to 28. God said, let us make man in our image. Notice the plurality there. Let us make man in our image. Uh, but also the singularity. How many images are there of God? One. Oh, Very good. But he said, let us make man in our image. So again, that's a Trinity verse, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Let us make man in our image, that he may rule and have dominion over the face of the earth, all the creatures. Set apart from all of creation was man, made in his image, given the kingly role of exercising authority on the face of the earth. That's what Adam was to do. Adam and Eve were both made in the image of God. They were to multiply, to make babies, and to have rulership. Over the face of the earth. Now, of course, that didn't pan out uh, too well. We're downstream from that blunder of an attempt uh, where man fell, okay? But man continues to bear the image and likeness of God, the divine signature that is imprinted on every human soul. That we still have a role in governing, don't we? Man is still set apart from dolphins, even though dolphins are really smart. Man is still set apart from gorillas, even though gorillas have opposable thumbs. We are still distinct from the rest of creation in that we are able to, and if you look down on page 11, we are able to uh, have a true will, to think and reason, to feel, to have relationship in a way that is different from all other creatures, even angels. There's a distinction between men and angels. And so this divine signature continues to be imprinted on the human soul, though we are now in a fallen state. And that's what we've tried to grapple with in this section on anthropology. We're made in God's image, but we're also corrupted. And so how much has that corruption affected the image? And uh, that's where we'll get in our review here too. But any other questions on or thoughts on what it means to be made in the image of God. Mandy. Isn't there a distinction between man and animals too, in the sense of soul? Yes. The uh, You get to a, a certain place in scripture, I think maybe the only place is Ecclesiastes, that talks about the spirit of an animal, uh, which again, it's like, okay, you got one passage and it's in Hebrew. What does that mean when uh, you examine the range of the Hebrew word that's used? Um, So there's a sense in which, of course, a living thing has breath and the breath of an animal leaves it and it dies. Um, Do animals have souls, though, in the sense of their body goes into the ground, their soul goes to be in heaven? Do all dogs go to heaven? They, uh, Their soul goes to be in the presence of God. And at the end of the age, they will be resurrected with mankind. I don't go there in my theology. I don't think we can get there with Scripture. If you want to believe that as wishful thinking, you're free to do so. But uh, it is just wishful thinking because Scripture isn't clear on that at all. Scripture is clear about man's soul, the immaterial aspect of man, that for the Christian to die is to be present with the Lord. That means our body is here, goes in the ground, but our soul, our real existence as an immaterial being is present with God, and there will be a day when we will be resurrected, and the immaterial material will be rejoined. That is absolutely clear. To get there with animals is just wishful thinking. Yeah. But you're free to think, uh, Fido will be there with you. <laughs> In the last days, doesn't it say that all things will be taken unto him? I'd have to look at what verse you have in mind in particular. There is a redemption of all creation that's going to take place. Romans 8 talks about this. That all creation presently groans together, suffering the pain of sin in the world. And all things will be redeemed. Absolutely. But does that mean... Uh, the dog that someone had 1,000 years ago, that specific dog will be in heaven. I, I, I can't really go there, but some people do. Well, how can you, how can you change it? All the trees that have ever died, will all those trees that have died be re- restored in the new earth? I have a hard time imagining that one. So that's that's my struggle. We with it. humans do have a hard time imagining yeah. the lot. Yes, all the fish that have ever died. Um, <laughs> would there be enough space? Uh, you know, I I just don't see scripture using that kind of uh, picture. But there is an, an aspect where there will be animals, there will be plants, all things will be made new, the whole of creation will be redone, um, and all those things will exist in a perfect state apart from sin. But will it be? You know, the tree that died 3,000 years ago, will that specific tree be resurrected, brought back, or whatever? I, I just don't see that in Scripture. Yeah. Okay. Other thoughts on the image of God? Or questions? Okay. We talked about dichotomy and trichotomy. Those are words I know you've used almost on a daily basis since we went through it. yeah. <laughs> The top of page 12, what does dichotomy teach? Two parts. Okay, that man is made of two parts, body and soul. What does trichotomy teach? Okay, three parts. What what part gets added? Body, soul, and spirit. Okay. And what's the difference between soul and spirit? Yeah, right. You can't really explain that. Okay, I don't really like that view. But then we have the psychosomatic unity view that tries to get away from those categories. Would someone like to explain the gist of what that view is talking about man's constitution yeah what do you have Evelyn what do you have written down oh come on I wrote stop talking about parts good no flesh and material. very good very very good yeah cuz what dichotomy and trichotomy get really caught up with how many parts is man made up of because unlike god when it comes to man we can talk about parts right you've got parts to you you've got flesh and bone you've got material and immaterial the dichotomist says you've got a body You've got a soul. Two parts come together to make a human being. I have no problem with saying we have parts. We're made up of parts. But I don't like being fixated on parts. Being so caught up in, well, what are the parts? Let's name them and describe their functions. Because if you wanted to go down that road, you just go to some really interesting places. If you look on page 12, after we talk about dichotomy and trichotomy, we go through and talk about how the Bible presents to us We have a soul, we have a spirit, we have a heart, we have a mind, we have eyes of our heart, we have a conscience. The Bible talks about us in so many different ways. And so if we're going to name parts, we could go on for quite a while. And if we sought to define them, we would actually be in a bit of a jam here because the Bible doesn't give us a ton of definition. What's the distinction between mind, heart, spirit, and soul? We could throw some thoughts out there, but could you be dogmatic on that ever? No. So um, what we need to do then is just view ourselves not as strictly material, not as strictly immaterial, but there's a combination of the two. And each has different aspects that you could consider it from. Our immaterial, there are different aspects that you can consider when you think about we have a heart, we have a mind, we have a spirit, we have a soul, we have a conscience. But these aren't necessarily all Kinds of distinct parts with specific functions, okay. Joe, I'm sorry. that's okay. Psychosomatic, yeah. I think of that as false thinking. Oh, well, that's not good. <laughs> it's really, it means mind body. It comes from um, Greek, soma is the word for body, uh, psyche, psyche is the word for soul, which is quite interesting in the, uh, the New Testament. Psyche, the word that we have, psyche. It's from directly from the Greek. It's a word that means soul. And so it's really talking about material, immaterial. Body, soul, body, mind. Uh, yeah, that, that's all that means. And that there's a unity between the two. Because there was something else that I stressed in this part. Uh, you see the fill in the blank right there in the middle of the page. The material and immaterial aspects of humans... Are inextricably tied. What is the only point in your life where your soul or your immaterial will exist apart from your body, apart from your material? What's the only point that'll happen? Die before. The second one. Very good, Mandy. Yes, if you die before Jesus returns, your body goes in the ground, your soul goes to be with the Lord. Now, what happens if you are alive and remain? At the coming of the Lord. You'll be caught up together and glorified in an instant. You'll never suffer physical death. Wouldn't that be something? Which would mean for those people. There's never a point in time. From conception. Into eternity future. Where their material and immaterial are separate. And so what the psychosomatic unity position. Tries to emphasize. Is that God made us this way. God didn't make us with bodies. And then say well we better throw a soul in there. (laughs) And we didn't exist as souls floating around without bodies. And then God said, well, we better put some physicality to this thing. That's not how that worked. You have, in your existence, always been both body and soul. That's how Scripture presents it. Okay? And the only exception will be if you die before the Lord's return. That way everybody wants the Lord to come back in their generation. So don't have to die. Well, yeah, I mean, that is a pretty big incentive, isn't it? It's like, hey, I be and you'd be pretty unique among all the people who have ever lived. It's like, that would be pretty cool. That would be pretty cool. But you won't be first. Because those who have died in Christ will be first, won't they? Mm-hmm. They'll be resurrected first. And so actually, you get to witness that as you're standing there, you know, eating your tacos at the taco truck. And you hear the trumpet. Okay, here we go. Uh, you know, if you're by a cemetery, it's going to be a show. It's going to be a show. Okay? Okay. What were you doing when the Lord returned? I was eating a taco. Uh, so it, was, it was Tuesday. Uh, oh, goodness. Another pizza. Yeah, well, that's Friday at my house. Okay, so it just all depends on what day the Lord returns. And if it's Sunday evening, who knows? Because that's free play uh, with meals at my house. So Sunday evening is usually junk food evening. All right. Um, in the original state, this is the bottom half of page 12. In the original state... Adam and Eve existed in perfect what? Innocence. Innocence. Very good. Uh, That is another unique experience for mankind up to this point, isn't it? Since they sinned, there's never been a time of perfect innocence. That was it. And since then, we have been so affected by sin in the world that we can't say that there's been a state of perfect innocence. And let's finish with uh, 13 and 14, or I guess it's actually 13 through 16, isn't it? where we talk about sin entering the world. Who sinned first? Satan. Very good. I thought I was going to trick you with that one. Uh, <laughs> say Eve or Adam. <laughs> then I was like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> the first sin, was it Adam or was it Eve? Who was it? Uh, how does Scripture present that? Well, it's actually Satan was before both of them. And what was his first sin? He could God. Good. He wanted very good. Self-exaltation was the first sin. He said, I will make myself like the most high. I will be like the most high. And uh, we read about that in two main passages. What are they? What two chapters of the Bible tell us about that first sin? Oh, Genesis. Isaiah 14? 14. 14. No. no. Satan's sin. Oh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Okay, that, that takes us back to before the garden. Where we get to that first sin. And you have Satan exalting himself and his pride. Sin was found within him, Ezekiel says. And that led him to be a fallen angel. He was no longer an anointed cherub as God had made him. But uh, he was a fallen angel. There's actually one more passage that we didn't go to. That's Revelation 12. Perhaps you've heard that when Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him. you heard that one? Mm-hmm. That comes from Revelation 12. When the dragon fell, his tail swooped and took a third of the stars of heaven with him. And we'll get to that when we talk about um, angelology, the study of angels. We'll get to that in seven years or however long it takes us. But uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about it when we get there. But it's can't take that out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All um, right. As we consider how sin then gets to us, we're talking about Satan here, but sin has affected us. How does headship play into this? Satan sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, sin has touched us from conception. How does headship play into that? That's right, but how does headship play into it? This is the bottom of page 13, top of page 14. He's the head of humanity. Good. Adam was considered the head of humanity. And whenever he sinned and fell, he did so as our representative. So you can think of, think of this now as a Christian. When Jesus rose from the dead, and well, when he died and rose from the dead, he did that in a sense for you as your representative, didn't he? We believe that his death on the cross was substitutionary. He was your representative on the cross. The cross is what you deserve because of your sin. So there's a good act that was done that benefited you. And you say, Yes, I appeal to Christ as my representative. Well, the reason you got in that situation in the first place where you needed a representative to get you out is because your first representative, Adam, he represented you poorly. And when he fell in the garden, you fell. All of humanity became corrupt. Because of his sin. So at the top of page 14. We compared and contrasted this idea of inherited sin and imputed sin. And the Bible actually gives us indicators of both. That Adam passed down his sin nature to his sons. And to his sons' sons. And on and on it goes to us. But that sin was also imputed. In that Adam's guilt is our guilt. As we're born into the world. And so there's an inheritance aspect and an imputation aspect. Aspect, and uh, we have been imputed with the status of guilty sinner. Okay. Good, April. So if we go to court and it says why did you do this or who's to blame, you say it's all Adam's fault. yeah that's true. <laughs> <laughs> all his fault. Yeah. He did it all. But if you ask Adam, he says it was whose fault? He was he's fault. fault. <laughs> yeah. Remember, God, God said who's to blame for this? And he said, well, it's <laughs> he and said it was Eve. And a- he says the serpent. <laughs> <laughs> nothing's changed really yes you're right and now of course in a sense that is true I mean how did sin enter into God's perfect creation well it's because Satan right I mean how were Adam and Eve influenced to sin they were influenced by the serpent Satan himself isn't that word passing the buck yeah, that's right. That's right. And you can't do that in God's courtroom, can you? Because ultimately, we all have to own up to our own sin. We have to take responsibility. Even though we inherited a uh, sin nature, even though we were imputed with a guilty status, you have still freely chosen to rebel. And you have to own up to it. Okay. All right. Let's uh, finish with uh, pages 15 and 16 just real quickly. We uh, talked about depravity, and depravity means, this is last week we talked about this, toward the bottom of page 15, depravity refers to how man's heart and mind are now captive to sinful desires and rebellious motivations. So uh, we hit it from a few different angles. There's depravity, there's corruption, there's an incapability to please God, there is guilt, All of these things really just refer to the fact that we are naturally sinners. We are captive to sinful desires and rebellious motivations. And when we grasp that, it really sets us up for the need for Christ. Because what happens if you go out with a gospel of good news that doesn't start with the bad news, is you get a bunch of people who accept Jesus, quote unquote, for all the wrong reasons. They accept Jesus because they want their life to get better. They accept Jesus because he's their you know, BFF or whatever. You get all these dumb reasons that people come up with. When at the heart of it, we need Jesus because we have a sin problem. And God is a holy judge. And we need to be rescued from the wrath of God. And the only way that we can do that is there is one and only son who he gave on the cross in our place for our sins. But you've got to understand how bad your sin is before a holy and just God before you get to that point of understanding what Jesus has done. And so next week, we'll get into the study of the nature of Christ, which will lead us into a study of salvation. Okay? Good?